So it's Amir here, of course, leading this roundtable with a few of the homies. And we want to come and talk to you about what it looks like to look at the African diaspora at the Olympic Games, because it's right there. It's right on display. Today, we are going to be joined by Bria Felicien, who is the journalist and the founder of the Black Sportswoman website newsletter. Please, like if you aren't subscribed to this newsletter, pause this, go do that. Uh, and then come back and listen to this, and you'll see why. Global stories about black women in sports, past and present. Um, please check it out. We're also joined by Dr. Javier Wallace, a recent grad from UT Austin, where he founded the Black Austin Tours. And obviously, I'm leading with this because I'm very mad that he decided to leave Austin literally the week I got here. Um, but that's because he's now big and bad race and sports postdoctoral associate in the African and African American Studies Department at Duke University. So we switch coasts, and that is tremendous. He works on Black Panamanian hoopers, basketball trafficking, among many other things. And we are also joined by Courtney Stith, one half of the Diaspora United podcast on Black women in global football. Uh, if you haven't listened to their latest episode, Nary a Lesson Learned, please go listen because literally, yes. And every time I watch, you know, soccer, global football, like I think in my head, oh my gosh, X, Y, and Z. And, and Andre and, and Courtney are already have it covered on the Diaspora United pod. So obviously a very qualified roundtable today. I'll just kick it off and then you can, everybody can just jump in from there with like their favorite person they want to shout out. So obviously my favorite was Jasmine taking the 100 hurdles. Uh, and also, I don't know if anybody saw it, but the coquille print on the back of her uniform was so lit and it took me like probably my 10th time on replays watching it to see it. Um, but Jasmine Camacho Quinn just holding it down, securing that first ever gold for Puerto Rico in athletics and second ever overall was, was absolutely my sweet moment. I think for me, um, even though there, I've been celebrating a lot of moments, I've just really enjoyed everything about Tara Davis with the long jump and the cowboy boots and the and the hat. I love all of it. Um, I have fallen in love with Clarice Abignunu. So she competes from Port France, but she is has dual citizenship with Togo and France. But with her gold medal in the 63 kilograms of judo, not only did she like avenge her loss, if you call it that, in 2016, now she's won every category in or every title in her weight category. So, and we're also born on the same day and same year. So that's my new fave. And when's your birthday now that you said it's the same? Oh, October 25th, 92. Hey. So we were hey. great Scorpios. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow, for me, I think the most notable athlete right now in this moment, I'm, I, I gotta give it to Mijain Lopez, the black Cuban wrestler who has broke every record. It has the potential to do it again, four consecutive gold medals and the possibility of him coming again and doing it, it just blows me out the water. I think that that was just amazing to see. So those are some of our favorite moments of diaspora athletes holding it down at the Olympic games. You know, they cross uh, country, national lines, uh, across multiple sports that you might not even think Black folks are in. Because every time the Olympics come around, I always get comments from people who, or see tweets where people are talking about like the random Black athlete on like 
the Italy volleyball team, right? Uh, or they'll be like, oh, there's black people in, in the Netherlands or like everybody gets confused. The other thing that I see happens a lot is like the commenters, they like trip up because they're so afraid to say black. They'll be like the first African-American when they're talking about somebody who's definitely like Brazilian, right? And so I think those moments that happen if I had a bingo card, it would definitely be like basically my free space of times when that happens. Um, you also then are kind of set up for these conversation of like, what does it mean to be Afro-Latinx? You know, um, the the Japanese three-on-three team had this brother balling out or Naomi lighting the torch. Um, and I think that that sets up a conversation that really pushes the boundaries of these kind of identity categories that we think we know, perhaps don't know at all. And lastly, it really opens up a conversation about black athletic labor. Why is it that even in countries where you could barely find a black person, you can find them at the Olympic Games? And what does that mean about how we use, exploit, and symbolize black athletic labor on a global scale? Um, and I want to start just by opening it up and to ask y'all, when I ask you about diaspora and when I ask you about the Olympics, what are what are your first thoughts? Obviously, me and Jermaine Scott, shout out to Jermaine Scott. We always say like hashtag big diaspora energy if we're like randomly watching like fencing at 4 a.m. and we put on for people. It's the Issa Rae, you know, GIF, like I'm rooting for everybody black. But it's deeper than that, right? So when I think um, about diaspora, what, the way I view it and the way I cover it at the Black Sportswoman is really, it kind of depends on the region. Like in the Americas, I think of, us being like united or uh, like, I just feel this, especially with black women, like this sisterhood almost, like the descendants of the transatlantic slave trade. Like, I think we have like, obviously it's different when you think about Afro-Latinx or African-American or uh, West Indian, like that's all different, but we have, still have that those same roots of like how we got here. I think that's kind of how I view that, but then, other countries, like there's different, various different reasons. There's the exporting of uh, US black men through the military. And like, there's like so many different ways that we got all over the place. And of course there's like the actual continent as Janine Anthony said on our YouTube channel, like, I mean, no matter where we are, the thing that bonds us is the continent because that's where we originated. So I kind of view that as like the continent where we originated but also the people in no matter how we got there, like, all of us around the world like there's like a almost like a when I'm watching them at the different athletes at the Olympic I feel related to them no matter like what language the sport like I'm when we see Issa we're talking about we root for everybody black like it doesn't matter what sport it is like I, I watched oh uh, is it Mayim Lopez like it was like 30 seconds and I'm like I love you. Like, I'm rooting for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even like now I'm attached to Italian volleyball because Paula. Oh, they're balling those two. Yes, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, she's sponsored by Armani. And then the captain has this blue hair, which I just took out my blue braids, but she has this blue hair, <laughs> 24, five-year-old black woman. So like, I kind of view it as like, we're all the same, but just yeah. there's a slight differences. So yeah, no, I think that's really interesting too, to think about like the continent and then one of the things you're like mapping even in that is these pathways, whether it's the transatlantic slave trade or obviously the consequence of colonization. Think about migration and immigration patterns, but also I think it was really great that you brought up like militarization, right? And this is so much of a legacy there about black GIs. One of the very, uh, very helpful framework to think about diaspora for those people who are just kind of coming to the term is to think about what are these patterns of movements of black people globally that has created this larger global family that's kind of yoked together and back to, to 
the continent. Yeah, Javier. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for me, I, I just love watching all Black athletes compete, um, regardless of what nation that they're representing. I just love to see them doing their thing. But me being who I am, <laughs> I mean, the thing that comes to my mind mostly when I watch any, any global sporting event is the amount of Black people representing nations that don't necessarily represent or care about them outside of what they're doing for the nation in these very public spaces. I wonder, do people have the same affinity for these people outside of the area of competition? Do we think about these people the same? You know, and, I, and, and coming from Panama, Latin America, and you know, I, I, I have a very popular saying that's been popularized uh, largely by my co-founder, Dash and friend, is you know, Latin America, we love to hide black people until it's time to win something. And then, then we just, then we're just all ushered out. So for me, I always, when I tune in, I just pay attention to the nations that are being represented and outside of sport. Do we see this same level of black people, number of black people representing the face of the nation outside? And I don't just only say that for what is Latin America. I mean, I mean that specifically, I think, you know, Qatar has really called my attention. Mm -hmm. yes yes <laughs> i mean and, and and this is this is a little bit before the uh the olympics but you know qatar's competing in Concacaf in the soccer um for the gold cup because qatar is hosting the the next world cup and when they were down there playing panama i was like what right where is this country at because this is not anything that i ever see represented on the space so i love to, to be critical about that and really ask that deep question. Do people who cheer almost to the point of like, look like they're about to pass out for these people during these couple of weeks while they're participating in the Olympics, do they have that same energy when thinking about the lived realities of black people in their countries that they are actually laboring for? In many ways, that's the question, right, that we talk about. And Courtney, now, you know, as somebody who looks at football, like we, we've we been having this discussion, of course, in the weeks before the games. Obviously, obviously, especially, um, you know, uh, as a Man U supporter, it was really hard, right, watching Rashi and, and Sanjo miss those PKs and how fast that conditional acceptance leaves, right, is that you are, oh, you're British or X, Y, and Z, fill out the blank at this moment. And, or you're black when you miss the PK, when you miss the shot, when you miss X, Y, and Z. And we can look at like West Indian, you know, folks in Panama. Like we can talk about what it looks like to look at this continuous marginalization. And exactly like you said, you can't find anybody unless you need to go win a gold medal in something or to lift a trophy. And so we definitely have this conversation at the Olympics. The other place I think that people uh, have this conversation is at the World Cup um, or in global uh, leagues and things like that. Courtney, is that one of the things that brought you guys to, to make the pod in the first place? I think the reason for Diaspora United is, you know, women's soccer around the world for the most part, is very, very white. Like even in places where, for example, you look at the men's team and it, they're not, yeah, they're white people, but you know, they're not fully white, especially in places like, you know, England, for example. And so we created the podcast because we wanted to celebrate Black women in soccer. And also Andre and I came together because we realized we both had a deep love for Crystal Dunn. <laughs> Always a good reason to do anything. 
<laughs> I mean, truly, that was the first iteration of the podcast. And we're like, let's make it a little bit more broad. And I think for us, when we think about, um, especially global football, but even right now with the Olympics, and the women's soccer tournament is significantly smaller in the Olympics than it is in the World Cup. And it's kind of the same thing we were talking about of countries that all of a sudden like pop up out of nowhere and have like black Olympic athletes. And it's like, Hey, what did you go on? Like, I remember looking, for example, uh, cause we did like a huge list of basically all of the diaspora athletes on each team. And I remember looking at Sweden and being like, Oh wait, there's like a black Swedish player. Like I had genuinely had no idea. Um, and I mean, part of that is because women's football in general doesn't get a lot of publicity or anything like that, but that's definitely something we think about, um, especially with, you know, a space that is so white and always wants to like, for example, celebrate black athletes at certain times, but, you know, for us every day or like every month is black history month, but for them, it's only, you know, very small parts of the year. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I think that that kind of goes back to what you put, um, Javier about athletic labor, right? And so you talk about this um, in terms of basketball, like as trafficking as well. Like, and you talk about, um, I think it's so hard for some people to understand sports as labor. And obviously, if you're a flamethrower, you're listening to Burn It All Down, this is not a new concept to y'all at all. But I think that there's a seduction about sports that makes it seem something as a fun and games. Um, and we miss the labor aspect. Um, and I'm wondering if we could just take a second to kind of dive deeper on this idea of like black athletic labor and the way that it's used in the global sense. Um, and I think that also this games gives us a great time to dive into like, obviously what I talk about in, in my work, which is symbolic labor as well. Um, and we can even start from the, from the jump off with Naomi lighting the torch, right? Um, that this is, uh, there's a way that you are like highly, highly visible and symbolized and you're doing this kind of work out there. And so uh, I wanted to know with y'all, especially like Bria, you've been doing such work, great work historically. Um, I especially love the pieces, you know, recently, I think both of y'all combined too about volleyball, right? And the actual history. And I'm thinking about this, we're recording this um, just like a day before the United States is going to play the Dominican Republic in, in volleyball. Um, and uh, I'm thinking about this, like in, in beach volleyball teams that we're seeing, et cetera, as well. How are y'all um, thinking through this idea of athletic labor and of symbolism? And we've seen this conversation dominate in, in certain sports. What are the places we're missing that really illuminates this topic as well? So I think on one hand, so like this is my big conundrum as somebody who is like my main focus is black women like on one hand this is the only time I'm going to see them this is the only this is my one chance to actually watch the Kenyan women's volleyball team play and they may not have won a set but I don't know when I'll be able to watch them on tv or online and on the other hand like I mentioned this in that Peruvian women's volleyball story a lot of this is upward mobility it's like their upward mobility chance, even though it shouldn't, that shouldn't be the, the case that it is, but like, that's just the reality of the situation. Black women in a, a lot of countries, I don't know enough to say all, but definitely a majority of countries really get rare opportunities to advance from the positions that society is like has placed them in, but sports is one of them. And then the Olympics is like the biggest stage to do that on. Um, on the other side, it's like, watching them succeed and bring glory to a country that one, they're only competing 
poor just because that country may have more resources because they colonized their home country or like something like that. Like it's it's so complicated, but like my work, my my vision for my work is something I tried to illuminate in the Peru story is showing the lived experiences of black women through sports and through sports stories or using sports to reflect and say, they may have accomplished these things, but they have accomplished these things despite how their lived experiences are in these countries. Um, but yeah, judo, there were so many black women judokas. Uh, wrestling, there's been a lot of actually, I think the first to win a gold medal in wrestling, Tamara Minsa, um, and then the Nigerian woman won silver. Oh, and also boxing. That's something that's like, especially the the smaller, the lower weight categories. Like there's a lot of like young up and coming women from Brazil. There was Rama Ali in for Somalia. Um, so there's a lot of different sports that may have been they're like more mainstream than I knew. But like I definitely I definitely wasn't watching judo before. But I think my <laughs> but I think my biggest conflict is I just I, it's just I struggle with how this is like a big moment for their upper mobility or opportunity to achieve more. Cause in the Peru example, like that 1918 that won that silver medal, like they that's how they got money. That's how they advanced in society. Even with the first woman to win, or no, she was the first person to win a gold medal for the country of Colombia <laughs> as a black woman. And while she was working as a phone operator, Maria Isabel Urutia. And I'm like, that's their only option, but also I feel obligated to cover it because this is their only option. Like I do want to support them. So yeah, no, that tension is real. Like it's absolutely real, especially I think we all cover people working in institutions we would could do without, right? And working with a series and set of forced choices, absolutely. And I think, um, and especially the gender element that I'm really glad you brought up and I'm gonna circle back to, right? Because there's a way that the Olympics, especially for black women, is a, a place with infrastructure and visibility that is not going to exist outside of the confines of international competition. And, and we can um, circle back to that in a second, Javi. I wanted to get your thoughts too. I think, you know, countries where there isn't a large Black population in, in countries that, that, that don't even take racial statistics, um, part of their demographic measures like France, like Spain, I think, you know, sometimes we're surprised on one hand that many of these athletes come out and participate, especially during track and field, especially during the sprints. But I don't think we think of it that, that as something completely foreign because I think we still associate Black people with certain sports and are able to only do certain things. So, you know, I think we can have this like racialized explanation of why France is, or why Italy, really, right? Italy for the 100 meters, why Italy is represented in the 100 meters finals and, and takes gold, right? We can racially explain that because the black people are, 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 are they can jump high, they can run fast, right? We can see it in basketball too, right? So I think about that part of how strategically black people have been utilized in certain sports in the Olympics. But as we also noted, Black people are not only represented in those in athletic events or in basketball, but have the, have the capabilities to participate 
in all of the sports, including the ones that are not as popular. And, and then it becomes very surprising to us, like uh, uh, Bria's example about judo, right? Because like, you know, we can we can work our way through the sprints. We were like, okay, I, I get that. Like, <laughs> but judo, no, <laughs> black judo, right? Uh, and I think the example that really sh- jumps out to me is, and I watched I watched the finals so happen. I was just watching um, Ray Ray Zapata. I, I, I wish I could say his whole name. I think it's like Raidele Raidele Zapata, the black Spaniard of Dominican heritage, you know, I think he brings a lot of attention there. And, you know, that has to be spoken about in Spain, a place where they do not take race into their demographics. But we cannot separate the migration of Dominicans from the island of Dominican Republic to Spain, the former colonizer. And what does that look like for those individuals? And what does that mean? for this person in this sport that hasn't been racialized as black to take the goal, to take the gold and represent the nation in a very surprising way. Cause I, I really don't think a lot of people will give him that. You know, I think they're, they're still gonna back off and like, what is going on? So I think the Olympics presents a myriad of opportunities for us to be very critical and look and not just look at the sports that we have racialized as black and we've explained that way. Because we'll be surprised, and I'm repeating myself, I'm, I'm like, we will be surprised of Italy winning the 100 meters. But we won't be surprised at the same time because we're like, okay, there might be three black people there, right? Which is a farce, and that's not true because there's a history of migration, particularly a historic one and a contemporary one that's very anti-black. And it's a lot of black people from the continent of Africa migrating to that space that have to deal with these things. And, and those things are real issues. And the last thing I'll say too, I also think about countries that will not put black people out there to represent, talking about migration. And the country that I love to talk about, I think Argentina is one of those countries that will not feel a black team because of what they want their image of the world to be. And we know we have plenty of historical examples of that. And I think that's truly the instance right now, especially in that, in that country that has a large migration of black people from the continent of Africa, black people from Dominican Republic, from other places in the Caribbean, migrating to Argentina. Now, generationally at this point, that I'm pretty sure some of those young people have the abilities to represent the country, but will Argentina allow that many or any black people to be on their basketball team, to be on their track team? And that's something that we don't talk about. And it's such a good question because obviously a lot of times when we talk about 1968, one of the things that we missed is one of the biggest mobilization pushes around boycotting the games was about the fact that South Africa and Rhodesia were going to bring segregated games, segregated teams to the Olympics. They were just very loud about it, right? They were like, we're bringing a white team. What are you going to do? And the IOC finally was like, don't come. But what you're talking about is a lot more subtle, um, and I think that that's, that that's definitely, you know, a really, really important point. Courtney, one of the things that I want to throw to you as uh, I want to put to everybody, really, but I want to start with thinking about football, is two kind of tensions in, a, in discussions about Black athletic labor that I've seen during this games. One, through people like Simone Biles, and Simone Manuel has been really vocal about this as well. Gwen Berry, shout out to my homie Gwen and Anna, all of them. Now I'll just list everybody. <laughs> but 
Um, they've been very vocal, right, about especially being the burden of like being the face of the games and having black women pushed to the kind of front in that moment and feeling the weight of that. And so on one hand, we've been talking about that. Um, on the other hand, we've been talking about what happens when symbolically you're like doing all the work, you're like the workhorse, and then you never get credit for it. Um, and actually, we've seen people left off teams like NECA, Agumake, right? Um, like Midge, uh, Justice for Midge. Um, Free Midge. <laughs> exactly. And then additionally, you have people like Crystal Dunn saying, like, I'm a vet out here. I'm doing all of this work. I am never the face of of this team. And I was thinking about, especially because I saw an article on The Root today, basically was the argument that like the women's basketball team from the United States was being ignored. Like they were saying a black team is being ignored while this white team soccer who only can win at bronze is getting all the love. And the reason why I disagree with it is because I was like, first of all, the reasons historically why the U.S. women's national soccer team gets much more publicity than the basketball team absolutely is grounded in anti-blackness and anti-queerness. That's not a discussion. But the context of this in particular, in calling them a white team to me, really erases people like Crystal. So then that brings me to the tension. Because like on one hand, you know, all we were talking about this leading into the actual Olympic cycle, the naming of the team. The camp was a lot more diverse. And then of course, when the actual team came out, it was like, this is the whitest team that you could have put together from the compilation of people you had in camp. And so there was like all of these degrees to the conversation. And so part of what I wanted to ask you is like, how are you sifting through this tension of people being left off team of erasure and just like actual utilization? Like what is happening here? Yeah. And it's, it's something I think about often, if I'm being honest, like I know we had an episode, actually this was pre-Olympics, but we're like, are we secretly rooting for Canada? Cause Canada had all of these black players all of them. that the U S just quite simply was not having. And maybe it was like 2015 world cup, but basically when Crystal Dunn was left off and then had this yeah, absolutely immaculate, yeah, 2015, this absolutely immaculate season. And I feel like we're even seeing the same thing now. Like we always talk about, you know, we say Midge is on a revenge tour. We say Sydney LaRue is on a revenge tour. We have all of these players that deserve to be called up and recognized that consistently aren't. But even that, there's like a tension in between that because we're like, we're not happy with the players that are currently on this 22 person roster. And like, I'm not even going to delve into like who's actually on the field. (laughs) It's a mess. We have many a podcast episode about that, but you also have this tension because it's like, it's like, I don't want them to do well. So that way they change it. But also at the same time, I still really, really want to support the athletes that are there. Like I want Crystal Dunn to be, a gold medalist. Like I want Chris and Press to be a gold medalist. I want Kat and Lynn because they took away the alternates and just made them full team members. Like we were so happy, but there's all, there's just like always that tension. And I feel like that's honestly just what it's like to be um, a black person or even any person of color within soccer. Cause it's like, you want them to do well, but you also want the systems around them to change. And, but like, you also know it's probably not going to happen. So it's like, it's always, I always have a lot of complicated feelings about it, especially with the Olympics, because I do want Crystal Dunn to be a gold medalist. So that way I can put Crystal Dunn absolutely everywhere and be like, you cannot forget her. You cannot forget her legacy. You cannot, you need to know every single thing about her. All five chickens, you need to know everything. But then at the same time, it's like, we're working in these systems that make it really complicated for us as media people, for us as fans of the sport.
Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. other kind of question I had is, of course, um, you know, Neka Agumake was done super dirty in terms of not being appointed to the um, women's national team. Her younger sister, Erica, was already going to play for Nigeria. Cheney was in the process of trying to get that done as well. And so Neka joined them. Neka and Cheney were, of course, denied the opportunity along with Elizabeth Williams. And it generated a discussion that I really would love your opinions on about what it means for diasporic athletes, right, to have multiple um either dual citizenships or like trying to figure out where they, who they compete for. Right. And this was like, I just had to get into it with somebody. I had to like pull out Naomi Osaka's Americanness, right? Like, cause there was a way that they were like, she's not black. Amer like, how can she speak to that? And I, so like, I had to like pull that in. Right. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, people had to point to all the work that the Gumakes have done in Nigeria around basketball. There's an anti-black discussion that's trying to separate Jasmine from Puerto Rico. And then there's another discussion about what does it mean to have representation from athletes who don't have a home there, et cetera, et cetera. So I would love to get y'all to talk about, especially when it comes up in these international competitions, what flag people choose to compete under, because I think it actually says a lot about resources and access to them. And of course, all I could think about in that Canada game, right? was if Sid would have stayed in that system, if Canada looked like that when Sid was coming up, right? Because obviously this is also the xenophobic argument that's made in other ways when we have, um, because we like fetishize international soccer players. But I would love to put it to you in like an internal conversation where we don't have to like block out all of the people making bad faith arguments, but how do we reconcile and think through the idea about resources and representation and flags and who people have the opportunity and or choose to compete with in the first place? Yeah, I honestly think it's really complicated. I mean, we were just talking about Kat, but Kat was born in Brazil and there was this whole, this huge narrative around her of that, you know, she was trying to get a passport to compete for the United States. And it's like, I understand it. She talks about, you know, really growing up here. Like, you know, she came over when she was 11 or 12 and, you know, like really feeling like quote unquote American or, you know, from the United States. But I think especially in global football, it plays out all the time. And it's something that I think a lot of players are starting to reckon with. Like I, when you mentioned that, besides thinking about Kat, um, but I also thought about, for example, Sofia Huerta, who plays for OL Reign um, and was capped a few times by the women's Mex Mexican national team. But then, you know, did that 
like FIFA has a one-time thing where you can like switch your national allegiances and she switched to the um to the U.S. but also it you know that's kind of a problem because I don't think she's been called up in a while and it's like look at all of these opportunities that players are like maybe choosing with like thinking oh I'll have this opportunity and I'll get all of these resources but you know kind of not get what they're looking for in the end, which is like national team call-ups and being able to play in international tournaments um, because of this is what it could be instead of maybe looking at the other option with programs that are not necessarily up and coming, but finally these, especially in soccer, these federations are putting money behind their women's teams. Yeah, I appreciate you brought up Kat because I kept thinking uh, I was down here in Texas when um, they were playing Portugal and uh Jessica, uh, who's this dope uh, Portuguese player, posted a picture with Kat and was like on IG, oh, it's so great to have somebody to speak my language with. And like every other comment was like, oh, Kat speaks Portuguese now, like trolling her, right? Because of the way she was, the narrative around her was like distancing her from Brazil. And I was like thinking about that moment so much as well, um, is, is that kind of narrative of like who you play for and why. Have you have thoughts on this? Oh, you better believe it. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to be nice and just don't. Not you don't say, have to be nice. You know, like burn it all down, burn <laughs> down all nations. I mean, all mm-hmm. the all concepts of nationalism in the nation. Because for me, they're trash. Um, and and I'm prefacing everything that I say as who I am. I am a dual citizen of the United States and the Republic of Panama. Um, uh, I've worked in sport in Panama. I lived in Panama for some, for a good amount of time as well, but I'm born and raised in the United States. And, you know, if Panama had American football, you know, I, I potentially would have been in the situation to have to choose, you know, which country to represent if that was an Olympic sport. But my thoughts on it now is burn it down. I wouldn't compete. You know, I'm almost willing to compete for either one. None of them. <laughs> um, because I, you know, the nation, this idea of nation and citizenship, in my opinion, is built on lies, on pure lies. In many ways, are super anti-black. Um, and the way I think about it is just like Trevor Noah, you know, his response to the French ambassador or whoever that came down to him when he said Africa won the World Cup. You know, Trevor Noah was saying we cannot separate a history of colonialism and migration post-colonialism and colonialism to France and these people participate and compete on behalf of France. You can't separate those things. You can't separate the, the, the reasons why people like myself and, and like the uh, Woodruff, the, the black Panamanian woman who is participating and are uh, participating on behalf of Panama, you can't separate our parents' ha- d- d- desperate need to leave the country because there was no opportunities for them as black people in the country to have to migrate to the United States. You can't separate those things. The same thing with Ray, with Ray Zapata. You can't separate what does it mean to be a colonial, a former colonial subject marginalized at the hands of Spanish and then having to migrate at eight years old to Spain and then represent it. You can't, dis, you can't disconnect those things. What makes people have to move to these different spaces and you know, it, is it a hard decision? It might be. Um, is it a decision that people make just because they can get on the Olympic stage? Probably, right? Let's be real about the situation. 
But then also the what I look at a lot, especially with basketball trafficking and with nationalism and talking about the inequalities and the disparity in resources with these different nations, which are real, but it's sometimes how these nations depend on the global north. Oh, that exportation, of course. See baseball, Dominican Republic. Like- to send the diaspora back to represent the country. Because we see that a lot in Panama is the country depends on its diaspora that is anti-Black policies pushed out to come back since we've been in the United States, got developed in this system, horribly so, to then represent the nation again. But then that also says something about the young people in Panama who are completely missed over because of the, the, the nation's new dependence on the diaspora, because the lack of resources in the infrastructure in the country. And I've seen that firsthand where young people do not have the opportunity because they're in the country now depending on the diaspora yeah. to make the ways. And the same thing is with the, with the, um, the, the sisters, the um, Ogumake sisters, like that's the same thing. We have to think about and, that, and basketball trafficking is the way that one, the United States has a hegemonic hold over certain sports and the global North to us. And that, what does that look like for the migration? But then in this instance is it, it, it creates a system that becomes very violent and even more equitable for so many people. So those are my quick thoughts is like there becomes a dependence on the diaspora to represent these nations in many ways where they could not survive. Yeah. And then and then do the work of the failed state. I think about this all the time when I think post Maria, the a number of Puerto Rican athletes and celebrities to whatever, but like athletes I was thinking a lot who were bringing supplies back. And like, I talked about this too with, with black Americans from the Gulf coast who were coming back and building back schools and stuff like that. And thinking about why, how black athletic labor is not just like getting people money there, but they're also then doing the work of the failed state going back to set up the infrastructure or to like literally build back roads. Right. Like, especially in places like Puerto Rico where places were just completely forgotten right? Like completely forgotten. And thinking about that, um, you know, you just preached a, ser- a whole sermon too about that that anti-Black policies that push out and then the dependence on the diaspora that that creates. I mean, I think that, that you really nailed, right, part of that tension that we're all talking about. Bria, do you want to wrap up this topic? Yes, because you, Javier, you actually talked about something that I mean, I don't believe in like these countries. Like I see it a lot online, which is kind of, I don't know if this has happened offline, but there's like a trend to act like, um, I don't know if it's a US specific thing to like idealize or idolize or like fetishize other countries and being from other countries or having parents that are from. And to me, that's just weird. But also I don't like to be in the position to have to defend the United States at all. But on the other hand, it's like, there's no country to me that's not right. anti-black as fuck. What are you talking about? <laughs> anti-black, anti-woman, anti-queer. Like, I feel like there's no, if I'm thinking about a queer black woman specifically or a disabled person or like, you know, like I feel like there's no perfect place and like, yes, the United States is bad, but also that doesn't mean that this other place is like perfect. So like I do under, like that is something I think that feeds into this conversation of like 
they should just go compete for Nigeria. And then there's also like an imperialism thing that I feel that's happening there. But on the other hand, it's like Nigeria had this issue with like the inadequate drug testing and like athletes oh. got disqualified. So it's kind of like, it's frustrating to see it all come down to the US basketball system screwed over this Nigerian American. So now she should go to this place. Like there were some actual Nigerians that were excited, but to me, it was just like, I felt a little weird about that being possible because I'm not a rules or rules person because of I don't know who's making up these rules, but like she was competing for the US like six months ago. Like it's just to me that's complex. And I know Enid Brigitte, I watched an interview, she was the first in 76, I think, she was the first black woman to medal in individual like swimming. And she said she was she's born in Curacao, Curacao. Um, but she competed for the Netherlands for that reason, for resources, because if she competed for her country, she would have had to pay for everything. And like, there's, she just wasn't going to be able to do that. So like, I understand, like, I would never be like, oh, you shouldn't be for this country. Like, I mean, I don't even view myself as like, like person that's like American. Like, I literally cringed as I said that word. Like, I, I understand, like, just take the opportunity that you're given. You're a black woman, like, just do what you got to do. But on the other hand, it's like, there's, it's much more complex than just showing up and going to this other country because it's better, cooler, or like commodified in like pop culture. So, and well, the interesting thing that I think about that, like, because I definitely hear and resonate with your points, and the th- interesting thing that Neca said that made me kind of recalibrate a little, right, was like for people, especially those with like dual citizenship or whatever that is, like to say, actually, it's not a choice. Like, I'm. I'm a person that's not like a split person. And what does it mean for me to say like, yeah, like this to me is about redistribution because I'm actually kind of chill with the idea of people going and get, I'm look, if Wendy Renard goes to France and gets all of their resources and then builds the dopest facility in Martinique, you know what I mean? Like I'm kind of down with like thinking about how, we might go take all of these resources and then, and not just do the work of the state, but actually build something better. Like, and what does it look like to think about athletes then and, and people, not just athletes, but like finding this, because the other thing that I'm thinking through is the other pattern that we're seeing in these games that I just wanted to make sure we threw in here is the one of like forced migration. Like we've seen this a lot with um, many Sudanese competitors and team refugees who, who have found themselves newly in places like recently. Sometimes we're talking about historical migrations and sometimes we're talking about something that's not even passed. And I think that what this whole conversation encompasses is that when we say we're rooting for everybody black, it's not just a cute gif, it's not just like a surface level type of thing, but it's deep and it's grounded in these conversations that we're having, right? It's grounded in considering the way blackness has moved and has been pushed and has created space for itself around the globe in linkages to each other and how that shows up when forced into idea of citizenship or nation state, et cetera, that doesn't always um, actually hold space or can even come close to containing all that who we are and and how we present. And so I really appreciate the three of y'all taking time out of what has been a very busy, now apparently it's August, 
Uh, it's been very busy, but I definitely wanted to make space for this conversation um, and let this be a foundational conversation. Now we know we're like the black sports Avengers to come back and, and to be able to tee up on this conversation. Um, but I really appreciate y'all taking the time and dropping some knowledge and, and wrestling with some of these tensions with me. Um, so uh, again, thank you from Burn It All Down. As we go, just tell me... Um, either a fun fact or somebody to watch for or a song that you're any like thing that's like a piece of how you're seizing joy today. Some, another athlete that you want to shout out anything like that, um, to end it on, on a good note. I will go first. The black woman sports psychologist in Ted Lasso is giving me my entire life in the first episode of the second season when they're like, are you good at your job? And she was like, do you think you're good at your job? Don't bullshit me. Just give me an answer. You're good at your job. And Ted was like, yes. And she was like, however good you are, I'm twice as good at mine. And I was just like, listen, and I feel a type of way about sports psychologists, but Miss Sharon is my good, what's good right now. That's anytime someone asks me, are you good at your job? That is the first thing I'm going to say back to them. So are you good at your job? Uh, for me, I mean, I don't know when this is coming up, but I am excited that Simone Biles got, you know, back on the beam um, and also doing it on her own terms. There's something really powerful to me about that. Uh, just, you know, talking about how, you know, so many people like, she's like, I'm doing it on my terms and also my life isn't just gymnastics, uh, which to me is really, really powerful. And I'm happy that for her, this medal like means more than all the other ones. So I will be celebrating that for a little bit. Absolutely. Ooh, easily, easily Yulimar. Rojas, who is gold medalist, world record holder in the triple jump, but also just side note her and Anna Pelotero's like relationship, like they like train together and all this stuff too. All three actually of the medalists in triple jump were uh, black women uh, of the diaspora of Venezuela, Spain and Portugal. But Yulimar, what I really like about her, I found out about her like a day before and then of course I got invested, but I think what I love about her is not only she's a speaking for herself, but as a black queer woman from Venezuela, but also speaking of like for other people, standing up for other people. And I just really just thank her and Raven Saunders. And like, I just, Black queer women have been loud this Olympics, and I am very excited about that. I'm very proud, and there's just, I just want to see, I'm like, how can I support you in the future? Because I'm ready to throw my money at you, but yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That is, and, and shout out to Raven, um, sending condolences to her. Her mom passed away today at the time of recording, which is um, really horrible news, so I know she's taking a step back. But to have that X thrown up and to say at the place where all oppressed people meet um, and to have her be unapologetically Black and queer and to talk about mental health um, has been absolutely one of the biggest things I'll take away from these games. I'm absolutely right there with you. Javi, bring us home. Yeah, uh, I was just because Bria mentioned two people, I'm going to do the same. But the person who she mentioned second and, and condolences to Raven Saunders, but I'm here for everything Raven Saunders. I mean, I was just taken aback. I couldn't stop watching all of the commentaries, all of the follow-up interviews that she was featured on. Like, I just was here for it all. Um, but in addition to Raven Saunders, I'm really interested to see what Gianna Woodruff does for Panama. Um, she's of the diaspora and in the 400-meter finals hurdles. And I, I want her to win, actually, or be uh, to get a medal 
because I want to go in on Panamanians. My own, I want to go in on the you people. You got to wrap your set at some point. <laughs> no, I want to go in on them. I wanna, oh, I wanna, oh, do that I too. Go in. Oh, you're like, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I, I want to show them how anti-Black they are and how yeah. I, I, I can't wait for this. So, so it's like, listen, the 400 hurdles, which I think, by the way, is the hardest fucking track event ever. Like, why are you doing this to yourself? But it's stacked now because, of course, my mentee Anna Cockrell is holding it down in there. And, of course, you got Sid and Dahlia. But... There's so many. I'm like, can they all meddle so we can get all of this discourse out here? Like, we have a lot. I feel you. Like, you're waiting, like, pen in hand. Like, all right, let me, like, what? I, I thought I heard you say something. What? Anti-Black person says what? I'm ready. <laughs> no, I feel you. Well, there is a lot of joy that we are kind of pulling from the otherwise chaos and mayhem of a general any day that ends on a why, but also right now is a bit of a mess. Um, so, again, thank you so much. Uh, this will be the last time we get together and light some matches. Um, obviously, as, as we all pointed to, there's a lot of stuff to burn. And as always, we will continue to find sparks of joy and torchbearers on our way out of that. So thank you again for joining me on this episode of Burn It All Down. And for Flamethrowers, I hope y'all stay safe, stay inspired, and enjoy the second half of the Olympic Games. <laughs>